The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Tuesday, the 21st of December. Dr. Gary Groman delivers another Omicron update, and it still seems less worrying than the rapid spread and huge number of new cases per day suggests. Dr. Groman, please tell us about yourself. Thank you, David, and it's good to be back with you. As uh, you know, I've worked for the TGA for some 17 years, and prior to that had a research career, and, and now I'm consulting to the World Health Organization on influenza and COVID. Gary, Omicron's the news everywhere. It seems every man and his dog and cat has an opinion uh, about it. So I'm, I'm really concerned that there's good facts and a lot of opinions and a lot of stuff that might be even wrong out there. Why don't you just update us and tell us what you have learned? Yeah, thanks, David. Well, before we jump into a pool of worry, as I think a lot of people have about Omicron, when the next variant arises or when a variant arises or a new virus arises in this case, we just need to ask three questions. And the first one is, is it more infectious than Delta? And I'll come back to it, but it appears the answer is yes. And then secondly, will it give more severe disease? And the short answer to that is no, it won't. We can come back to that. And will vaccines and boosters be effective? And if they are effective, for how long? And we can come back to that. But if I start with uh, infectiousness, it's pretty clear that uh, Omicron will almost certainly overtake Delta around the world. We've seen it already overtake to um, 70 to 30% now in Africa. We've seen it rise and begin to overtake in the UK. It almost certainly will in Europe and everywhere else in the world. Now, it's been dominating for a while. And just in the same way that Delta dismissed Alpha, Beta and Gamma in exactly the same way as a virus becomes more infectious due to mutation, uh, the Omicron variant will overtake Delta. Now, in saying that, we've also seen Epsilon and Lambda and Mu variants arise and they've come and gone because they haven't uh, acquired the mutations to be more infectious than Delta, but Omicron clearly has. Now, we know it had about 50 new mutations. Well, they're not new in the sense that we haven't seen them before, but they appeared all in one virus almost at once. Um, and that doesn't surprise virologists. We expect mutations to happen. But of those 50, probably 30 are of interest, but quite a few of them are on the receptor binding domain, which means the virus becomes more avid. It sticks to the cells, binds to the cells in a much stronger way, to put it in simple terms. And this will allow it to move faster from person to person. Some of the politicians describe it as fleeting transmission, which is probably about right. But the R number, you know, epidemiologists estimated it around about two point something, which is reasonably high. It might be up, some epidemiologists say it's five point something, which is extremely high. The highest we know of is measles, which is around about 16 as an R number. Mm. So just to put it in perspective, an influenza would be about one and a half. 
So uh, we can see that it is very, very infectious uh, and it has the tremendous advantage of causing a lot of subclinical infection. So certainly there's no question it's spreading fast and there's no question in my mind as a virologist anyway, that it will overtake Delta in time. And I would say in the next three or four months, it's going to be the dominating virus around the world. Mm-hmm. So is that to be, is that a major concern? Not really, unless severity is an issue. Now, when we look at severity, the reports out of Africa were very, very clear that this virus is not as severe as Delta that ICU and hospitalisation rates were not increasing. We're also getting a similar story out of the UK now. That's good news. So we now have a virus that uh, will overtake Delta, but will be less severe. Well, that's going to be good news for the hospital system. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Well, hello, my name is uh, Professor Robert Boy. I'm an infectious diseases specialist and epidemiologist. And I especially like to talk about uh, vaccination and the prevention of vaccine preventable diseases. There's a very real risk that a whole bunch of viruses will be imported, but influenza is the most concerning. Suddenly, when we shut the borders in March 2020, flu went away. And we haven't had a flu season now for two years. And that is really, really important because there's no natural immunity out there uh, nearly as much as there was. And also the influenza vaccination rate in 2021 was really quite low. People were so busy getting themselves COVID vaccinated, they didn't get their flu jab. So the combination of two really quiet flu seasons, very quiet in Australia, and a poor level of vaccination in 2021 against influenza (laughs) means that there's a great many people who are much more susceptible to influenza than usual. And I would predict that we'll get at least a moderate season and probably a big flu season. 2017 and 2019 were both big influenza seasons in Australia. We've now had two quiet ones. I would predict fairly strongly that we're due for trouble in 2020. 22, and it's probably going to start early in 2022 as well. So what we do have already is a lot of vaccines from last year against influenza in people's fridges. Now, because flu hasn't been transmitting, it also hasn't been mutating. When flu is in anyone's body, it can change its spots within a couple of days. It's an RNA virus that mutates very easily. COVID takes more like two weeks in a chain of transmission to get a meaningful mutation. Flu takes more like two days. So because flu has not been transmitting, it won't have mutated terribly much. And so the vaccine that we've had all year and in our fridges still, if we suddenly got a surge in December, January, people who are at risk, especially 65 and above chronic medical conditions, they may well benefit from a flu jab, a booster, especially if they didn't have one last year, if they forgot. So those flu jabs in your fridge might actually turn out to be useful in uh, December, January, if we suddenly get the surge that I'm worried we might have of influenza. And then we'll have new flu jabs available from March. And they, of course, have been updated and uh, they would be appropriate to use from March. We also have a different situation now today than we did six months ago with Delta. We're all vaccinated. 90% of us have had a double vaccine. 
that gives the community uh, tremendous protection. So that too needs to uh, be taken into account. And now we also have the advantage of having boosters as well. Uh, so we have an, another line of defence to help us against Omicron. So we know it will be more infectious. We know it will be less severe. Now, what about the vaccines will they protect? Pfizer recently published a nice study, and I hesitate to add, that, or I need to add rather, that it needs to be peer-reviewed and confirmed. But nevertheless, the study clearly shows that with the current vaccines, we get about a 70% efficacy or protection against Omicron. That's excellent. Any vaccine giving 17, uh, 70, 70% is very, very good. Uh, and if you get a booster, that goes back to 90%. So there's a very good argument for everybody to get a booster. Um, now, we're in a very fortunate situation in Australia. Not only can we see what's going on overseas and collect the data and make decisions on that, but we can keep encouraging people to get double vaxxed and we can keep encouraging people to get boosters within five to six months, I think is the current recommendation from ATAGI. Uh, and this makes sense. Why? Because antibody wanes. So the other thing we definitely know now is that after three months um, of your second vaccination, your antibody begins to drop. And by about six months, it's waned fairly significantly. So it makes sense to get a booster at that five to six month mark. And there's another thing to consider here. We've only had two doses. This could be a three-dose vaccine. Um, we haven't done the work yet to really say yes or no to that. But in the same way with hepatitis B and HPV vaccines, you need three doses. It might be the same for uh, coronavirus, for COVID-19. So getting a third shot, even though it's aimed at Delta, getting a third shot will awaken, so to speak, the memory cells and the whole CMI response to the point where it may well give much better protection. And that's what is being found, that you've had two doses against Delta. It's giving you 70% right now efficacy against Omicron. And a third dose against the Delta variant, the same thing, gives us 90% against the Omicron. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me it's likely a three-dose vaccine anyway. And that's interesting. So whether we'll need further doses in the future, further boosters in the future has yet to be determined. But I think we need to be prepared for that, David. Mm -hmm. Manufacturers are certainly prepared to uh, uh, switch viruses or update viruses or the gene sequences in this case to express the protein on Omicron in this case or any future variant. But it makes sense there will always be cross-protection from the current vaccines that we have, just like any other vaccine that we know of as viruses keep changing. Uh, there's always some cross-protection, even with influenza, there's some cross-protection, albeit low. Uh, and this is what we expect. Now, the subclinical rate must be immense in a place like Africa and other places, I expect. We talk about cases or positive diagnosis all the time. But behind that, in our usual pyramid that I'm sure we can remember from university, we have clinical cases up the top and then lab diagnosed cases. And then under that, we have unlab diagnosed subclinical cases where people have silent infections and don't really know that they're carrying the virus and they uh, inadvertently pass it on from person to person. And this is why a virus like Omicron is going to spread rapidly. 
particularly now, David, as we have taken off all restrictions mm -hmm. and we've opened up travel, albeit with some quarantine involved. But do we need to worry too much about Omicron? I don't think so myself. I think it's going to be a virus that predominantly causes mild infection, mild disease with a very, very low ICU uh, rate, a very, very low hospitalization rate. And the people at risk are the same as what we uh, are the same as when we started on this journey a few years ago now. And they are the unvaccinated and those that have comorbidities or those uh, with immunosenescence over the age of 70 and so on. These are the people we still need to protect and make sure they get their boosters first. Uh, that's very, very important. Any healthcare worker as well, it would be sensible if they got a booster at the right time as well. At this stage, the target recommendation is around about five months. Gary, that's, thank you. That's a very important update. Is this hearsay or is it reality that Omicron seems to really hit the young children a little bit more, although they don't get sicker, but they seem to get the infection more? Oh, look, I think it's um, uh, just a blips in epidemiology. I, I, I don't think there's anything in that at all, and I don't think there's any more severe disease. We, are, we will find, as we keep looking harder, the different groups will suddenly appear. We haven't especially looked at children before. All of a sudden, we're looking at children. We've concentrated on um, those that are at high risk, and that's what we should keep. I think the government is right. I'm not sure who said it, but government, some government officials or politicians have said it's important not to get too focused on case numbers if we're going to live with COVID properly, just like we don't get too focused on case numbers of paramyxovirus or influenza even. I mean, we're aware of it, but we don't stop, you know, we don't stop what we're doing just because the virus is going around. We will get to that situation with Omicron and Delta. And remember, as viruses evolve and gain mutation, mutation is, doesn't mean always that it's going to tend towards severity. Mutation invariably means that it will become less severe, but more infectious. And, and that's what we see with many, many viruses. They, uh, this is the trend and this is the nature of coronaviruses as well. I've said before to you, David, that um, uh, OC43 uh, and uh, 229E and other coronaviruses like that were almost, almost certainly pandemics 120 years ago. And they've become normal common cold viruses as they have adapted to humans and as they have mutated to cause less severity. And virologists are pretty sure now that some outbreaks in the 1880s, which were thought to be influenza, were almost certainly coronaviruses. So we have two uh, potential pandemic viruses now to consider um, and to think about, and they are obviously influenza, which is a constant threat, particularly from the animal world back to humans, and secondly, coronavirus, again, a zoonotic infection. So that's why they're, they're the two we need to consider consistently. Gary, at the moment, um, we have two mRNA vaccines offered as boosters. Do you have any comment about one over the other? No, David, I don't think there's any advantage of one over the other. Um, it's just important to take one of the boosters as they're available. But I would say there are advantages of the mRNA vaccine over the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, it, it seems pretty clear now, or again, the, the early studies need to be confirmed. And 
I, I think those mRNA vaccines give a better boost in terms of immunogenicity, at least, mm -hmm. uh, than the AstraZeneca vaccine. But having said that, AstraZeneca vaccine is being used as a booster, particularly in the UK, uh, but only with moderate success. You'll see that Omicron is spreading in the UK and some 15% of people that have had two or three doses of AstraZeneca are ending up in ICU. So it, it doesn't seem to be boosting as well. And by boosting, I don't just mean immunogenicity, the IgG or IgM you can measure as an immediate response or even serum IgA. I, I mean, the whole gamut of the immunological suite where CMI is included, that is really, really important. And my expectation would be, a bit like hepatitis B, once you get three shots, uh, then the memory cells in particular and other cells in the immune system uh, will be functioning at peak and should give us a, what we call a broader protection and a more long lasting protection. And I, I'm hoping that's the case, time will tell, won't know unfortunately for another four or five months, but that's to be expected. By then Omicron itself may change or there may be a new variant on the horizon and that too is to be expected. Uh, Delta's really only been with us for six or seven months. I might add, though, when you look at the genetic data on the Gizate database, just remember the Delta's still dominating around the world. In the Americas, about 80% of isolates are, in fact, Delta, not Omicron. It's the same in South America. It's 97%. But this will change eventually. But at the moment, Delta is still uh, supreme when it comes to uh, the variants around the world. But it's expected that Omicron will be eventually taking over in, uh, in, in due course. Gary, update us on Novavax. Well, Novavax has now been approved by the World Health Organization and they have uh, just recently uh, published on their website uh, that they will uh, work with the Serum Institute of India to make it for poorer countries, which is fantastic news. Also in Europe, uh, the European regulators have approved uh, Novavax for emergency use. So hopefully for Australia, that will be just around the corner. We know it is before the TGA now. So hopefully uh, an approval will be just around the corner. And then uh, Novavax will also be available either as a double dose vaccine and or as a booster. Uh, and I, I, I think that can only be good news. I believe the government's ordered 150 million doses of Novavax. So we'll have plenty of it. And the other good thing about that vaccine being a protein vaccine is that those people who are sitting on the fence currently not wanting one of the newer types of vaccine based on uh, virus vectors like the AstraZeneca or the Pfizer Moderna types, which rely on mRNA. So if people are sitting on the fence, they might go for the more traditional protein vaccine, uh, which is not nucleic acid based. It is simply a protein injected into the muscle to which you make an immune response just like every other inactivated viral vaccine. And people may be more comfortable about that. Uh, so I'm hoping that another two or 3% that might be sitting on the fence now in the Australian population will uh, get off the fence and, uh, and get vaccinated with this particular vaccine. Uh, it has an excellent safety record and a very long safety record as well because the same platform's been used for influenza. Uh, and it's made in insect cells, not animal cells, uh, and the protein is highly purified, turns into nanoparticles uh, with, to which you make an immune response to. So 
you know, it's got everything going for it, I think. It can also be easily updated, although a little slower than mRNA type of vaccines, but it can be updated. And um, within a few months, uh, new boosters can be made. And given that we'll only need them about every five months or six months or so, then um, this also becomes an ideal booster. What about data on efficacy and immunogenicity? Well, uh, excellent. Uh, well into the 90% for efficacy phase three clinical trial. Uh, we've yet to see real world data, but there's no reason to think that it um, uh, should drop any lower than that, given that mRNA and viral affected was so successful as well. So um, uh, that's all good news. Uh, immunogenicity is stunning after two doses. Um, what we don't know yet is if uh, what happens with a booster. If you've had, say, mRNA or AstraZeneca vaccine, what happens to your immunogenicity if you get a Novavax booster? Uh, and that's yet to be determined. But the expectation from immunologists would be that it should give a fantastic immune response. Um, it's targeting slightly different things than the mRNA vaccine in terms of the S protein. And um, uh, the immune response should uh, be very, very strong. And that's the expectation. It might also be an ideal vaccine for children as well. If people do want to get their children vaccinated, um, they've got a wide choice now um, to mRNA vaccines and possibly Novavax once the data comes in on children. I think that's still being uh, assessed, but we should have it for adults uh, shortly and then for children sometime next year. But the expectation, again, is that it will be excellent in children as the influenza platform was also very safe and efficacious in children. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Pertussis vaccination is key for adults. We should all get a pertussis vaccination every 10 years. Anyone who will be in contact with an infant under six months old, healthcare workers, childcare workers and travellers should get vaccinated every 10 years. Pertussis can cause severe complications in people with existing conditions, such as cardiac disease, asthma, COPD, diabetes and obesity. Protect against pertussis. Gary, it's taken a long while for Novavax to get out. And I, I guess the data you're looking at was probably for, I'm not sure whether it's a Wuhan strain or the Delta. How's it going to go with Omicron? Well, that's a good question too. Um, it is towards um, uh, Delta and we've found that vaccines to Alpha, Beta, Gamma or Delta, uh, as the vaccines have rolled off, have all been very cross-reactive. So I expect it will be highly cross-reactive to Omicron. Even though we all uh, like numbers, like 90% or 100%, there's nothing wrong with 70% efficacy. <laughs> That's uh, actually very, very good in a trial. And nobody expected uh, these vaccines to have a 90% efficacy. That was extraordinary and very, very unexpected. We we're all hoping for 70 or so. So the vaccines are still very, very useful against Omicron and particularly against severe endpoints and particularly useful for immunocompromised and people at risk. Mm -hmm. so, uh, I think we we'll still have a lot of confidence in the vaccines that we've had and the boosters that are to come, no matter where they're from. One last question on the mRNA, uh, Gary. Uh, as we get more and more of these shots, a booster and who knows in six months time, another one, 
Do you think that theoretically there is a reason why these sorts of increased numbers of mRNA may give us more ad uh, adverse reactions or you don't expect that? Yes, uh, distribution studies really need to be done more thoroughly. So by that I mean when you take genetic material and put it into an animal, you need to see what products are made and where they end up in the animal, uh, a bit like a tox study. In the case of a third dose or a fourth dose or a fifth dose, uh, this needs to be done. Uh, and it, it needs to be done by pharmaceutical companies to ensure that there are no other products that appear that are unexpected. Now, so far, so good. But for a third dose, for a fourth dose, we need to be a little bit careful, I think, which is one of the reasons being a bit more conservative, I, I would tend uh, more towards a protein-style booster. But we do know that people are receiving a third mRNA dose, a third AstraZeneca uh, dose without any obvious ill effects as real-world data. And there have been some small efficacy studies uh, done as well. So that's, um, that's probably all I have to say on that score at the moment, David. Uh, but I, I think we can have faith in our vaccines and faith in real world data. As I said before, we are sitting pretty in that we can look towards the US and the UK, the EU, and we can see what's going on there before we engage in the same kind of program. Uh, so we're very fortunate. And of course, we're coming into summer, they're going into winter, there will be many more cases of COVID-19 in those places and there will be in Australia. We, we will have a surge for sure as restrictions come down. Uh, movement increases, people go on summer holidays and so on. We will certainly have a surge uh, of Omicron uh, or COVID-19 in general, whether it's Delta or Omicron. And it is important to keep sending out the message, you know, from the offices of GPs that vaccination is very, very important. Uh, but I think equally, uh, as I'm famous for saying on this program, it's very important to also be sensible with restrictions. And I think anyone who's in a high risk group or with a comorbidity really should wear a mask. Yeah. Uh, when you're out and about in public, particularly if it's crowded, whether you're in the theatre or a football stadium or you're simply shopping, it just makes sense to take that tiny extra precaution, uh, which really is not much of an inconvenience. Uh, and it will give enormous protection to not only yourself, but to those around you. And of course, simple things like hand hygiene are so important. Unfortunately, we tend to touch our faces, eyes, nose, mouth uh, pretty often during the day. I think I read in one journal, it's something like 90 times a day. Uh, we do it inadvertently. So if hands are contaminated, it'd be very easy to acquire the virus via, uh, via the nose, mouth, or even the eyes. Uh, and um, we just keep needing to re-educate ourselves uh, uh, constantly to make sure the sanitizers are used. And, and I think that's happening in the community, the sanitizer all over the place. So that's, that's really excellent. But people still have to uh, make the effort to in, ensure that it's used. Gary, uh, one last one. You're not an epidemiologist, but I'll, I'll just run this by you. Now that the QR codes are pretty much not used, I suspect that our uh, test, trace and isolate strategy is pretty much abandoned because the numbers are so huge. So I don't know whether we've ever been doing this ever with any kind of infectious disease. So what are you scientists going to learn from this? 
Well, I think the QR code's really important in the beginning, David. Um, the test, trace and isolate was important because we didn't know what we were dealing with. And we did want to protect people in the community. So restricting movement using QR codes when people do move was really important. Now, unfortunately, it's become a little bit blasé and people just don't even sign in. And some people are even saying, well, I don't want to sign in in case I get that text that I need to isolate, to be blunt. So it's probably not worth using anymore. But what is worth doing is encouraging people that if they get symptoms to go and get a COVID test. That is important, not just for themselves, because it's almost certainly going to be a mild disease and trivial, but it's important that you know you've got COVID so you can wear a mask, for example, and make sure you don't come into contact with a pregnant woman or with a child or with somebody who's older or somebody with a comorbidity. So that's, you know, we need to invest in the intelligence and common sense of the community as well. We can't just keep sort of telling people what to do. We have to educate them and invest in their intelligence and common sense so they then take responsibility for their sore throat, uh, their family, uh, getting tested, going to work or not going to work, whatever it might be. Uh, we need to begin investing in that. And I think particularly in the New South Wales government, their approach, they are beginning to invest in that. The sacrifice will be, or the downside will be, a temporary surge in COVID. But as the surge goes up, so does awareness. And um, uh, people will, I think, start getting tested and being careful of, you know, whether they need to go out or, or who they come in contact with and so on. But COVID, um, I think, will be here for a while, at least another year or two. Uh, and as it begins to move more into the subclinical area rather than uh, overt clinical disease, then I think uh, eventually, slowly but surely, it will eventually end up being yet another common cold virus that we call COVID-19, and we'll be able to give it a name and a diagnosis. But you can't stop it now. Uh, it will continue around the world. What we need to do is make sure we get vaccines around the world, David, so that places like Africa, where 1% of the population is vaccinated, or South America, where it's about only 10 or 15%, India, very low, whatever it is, uh, we need to get vaccines there because this is where variants arise. We saw Wuhan arise in China and spread Delta, of course, in India, uh, but we've seen Alpha and Beta in Europe when people were not vaccinated and were spreading willy-nilly, and we got Alpha and Beta, uh, Gamma in South America predominantly, and we've seen Mu in Colombia, we've seen Lambda and Epsilon come and go, and many other clades, I might add, uh, we're focusing on Delta and Omicron, which is fine, but there's another 30 or so clades I can tell you about that have come and gone with Delta predominating now Omicron. So that's the situation uh, and, and that's the expectation. One comment, uh, Gary, China is still going for a zero case um, with whichever variant. I'm not sure how well they're doing, but the important question is, can they get to zero? That's one. And the second is, if they did, how in the world are they going to re-engage with the international community later? You can try and get to zero, but it will never happen. Eventually, Omicron will come through. Island nations like New Zealand, uh, for example, held zero for a long time, but eventually it will slip through. And that's because of the phenomenon of subclinical infection. And everybody's focused on clinical disease and testing and tracing, which is all good. But the subclinical infection is the one that will get you. I think I gave the analogy before, or I often do, holding a ball underwater, you can only do it for so long. And it will pop up. 
Uh, and it's the same with Omicron. You can close borders and close cities and stop aeroplanes and all these things, and that will give you a temporary reprieve. But due to a single subclinical infection in a taxi driver in the eastern suburbs, we suddenly got massive spread of virus in the country. And this is how it works. Uh, and it's this whole subclinical fraction that will allow Omicron, Delta and other COVID-19 strains uh, to spread as they do for nearly every other virus. Remember, most viral infections are subclinical uh, and that's why viruses are so successful. Also, the other thing is that people excrete viruses in nasal washes and so on uh, maximally before the onset of symptoms, before the onset of symptoms and then while it's symptomatic. So if you're excreting virus before the onset of symptoms, that's how you get fleeting transmission. <laughs> so this is not something you can uh, somehow control just because you decide to shut a border uh, or stop an aeroplane. This just isn't going to happen. But you can wear a mask on an aeroplane or when you shop. Uh, you can decide how much travel you need to do. Um, you can decide your own personal situation and what kind of risk you're at depending on your age and health uh, condition and so on. And you can decide whether to get a vaccine or not. And you can also decide to get a booster or not. And these are clear, rational decisions that every individual can make. And you can decide to invest uh, in the intelligence of the community, in the intelligence of the medical and scientific community uh, to see us through uh, this uh, series of events. And it will continue for a while. And Omicron probably won't be the last variant. You know, I just love talking to you, Gary. It's just, it's just lovely to be able to go and tell our GP colleagues there's a lot of stuff happening out there. But really, yes, it's going to be a lot of infections. But hang in there. It may be not such a bad thing. Just make sure those who are vulnerable make the right decisions for themselves and care about themselves. And I love what you just said invest in the intelligence of the community. I think this is where GPs have a role in actually increasing the education and also the personal responsibility of each individual. No, I agree with you, David. We, we have to take personal responsibility and, and, and that's how you beat a virus like this. I, I'll go out on a limb a little bit uh, and say that uh, with the Omicron variant arising, which is more infectious but less severe, this almost is a natural vaccine. Almost natural virus vaccine. So for those that are double vaccinated, not for those un unvaccinated or with serious diseases, but for those that are healthy and double vaccinated, actually getting this virus in due course uh, could be a little bit of a blessing in disguise because it's the natural booster. And this is what happens with uh, viruses in general. We're vaccinated to measles, mumps, rubella, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean we don't come across them. We do. And every time we do, we get uh, some uh, boosting, of course, uh, to those particular agents. And this is important to understand. Vaccines get us to a particular level in terms of immunity. And it's going to be the natural infection, the natural subclinical infection that we get all the time which boosts our immunity and stops serious disease. Gary, when will you be able to say with some certainty that indeed um, the Omicron is indeed like a natural vaccine? How long does the world need to wait to learn more? Well, I think we're going to see it shortly as, as it spreads through the UK, the EU, 
Uh, numbers have yet to come in, but I'm pretty sure it's probably 50% Omicron now. As it spreads in those areas and eventually goes to the US and South America and probably back into Asia from there. As that happens, we will almost certainly see more infection, but less severity, no increase in ICU or hospitalisation rates. And that's when it starts to become uh, a, natural a natural live vaccine, so to speak. One of the good things about getting a subclinical infection, if you're immune, if you've got protection from the vaccine, is that you'll get a natural response. So you'll get the full CMI and humoral response uh, to the virus. Well, we don't know how long it will last, but I would suggest if it goes, if it's similar to other viruses, it could last for a long time, at least a year or two. And that's what I'm hoping will happen. Uh, for the moment, though, we do need a booster. And I, as I said before, that's going to give us much better and broader protection uh, and will really, really help bring the case numbers down that may need ICU or hospitalisation. So uh, I, I think that's where it's heading. I mean, as a virologist, I'm not worried about Omicron at all. I was more concerned about Delta. Now we've got the vaccine to that, and Omicron is a bit of a top-up in a way. It's a bit of a radical thing to say. Not everybody will agree with me. I realise that. Uh, but that's what I would expect, and that's what we see when we look at the nature of viruses and look at the nature of viruses in the past and what they've done. And if you look at history, from which we can learn a lot with pandemics, but also viruses in general and the nature of viruses, uh, this is what tends to happen. Mutation, yes, less severity, uh, and but more transmissibility. Uh, and therefore, this constant boost to the immune system. And eventually, they disappear. The 1918 influenza virus disappeared, as did the uh, influenza viruses in the late 40s and 50s. They came and went, and 60s as well. They came and went, and, and some of them continued and came back, and so on and so forth. But interestingly, when pandemic came along in 2009, it was a fairly mild pandemic, but nevertheless, it came. But um, many older people that uh, had been around and in a long history of influenza had no issue with uh, pandemic 09 influenza. So, you know, history informs us and we need to be confident and positive. And now we have these fabulous new platforms and we have the Novavax vaccine as well, more traditional platforms and other scientists and researchers, pharmaceutical companies are making newer vaccines, uh, second generation vaccines. Uh, there's going to be a lot coming on board next year, David. There'll be many, many more vaccines, including live vaccines uh, and even an oral vaccine uh, and probably patches as well where needles, there'll be needle-free patches uh, where you can uh, take a vaccination that way. So there's lots of approaches that are going to happen in the next 12 to 24 months and many new second-generation vaccines, which will be better and broader, uh, will also be available. In the meantime, we've got great vaccines in AstraZeneca, mm. and Moderna and Pfizer, of course, and Novavax to come. So I think we're in a very good position with boosters as well to match. Gary, I think we can all sleep a little bit better having heard what you had to tell us. I look forward to maybe in the future just uh, confirming uh, what we're hearing and um, hope that this virus, uh, this particular pandemic was slowly make its way out? Look, I think it will, David. I, I, I give it another two years and then I, I really do think it's going to be over. And again, it's another big call. But uh, if you look at other pandemics, that's exactly what happens. Uh, the 1918 pandemic started in about 
1914 or so and stopped by about 1920 after it hit its peak. The same with the late 40s, 50s and 60s. They lasted one or two years and evolved into a virus that was far less severe. And we see this happening all the time. We've seen H5N1 appear very severe, but not easily transmissible. Same with H7N9, and then H7N9, other H7 viruses. So we see this all the time. We need to be alert. We need to have worldwide systems uh, to track and monitor viruses as they arise from the animal kingdom into human endeavour. So, uh, and that's in place. Um, there are plenty of labs in the world that are studying these things and gathering information. Fortunately, most of it ending up in the Gizeh database, which is accessible to everyone in the world. And uh, these sequences and viruses can be looked at objectively to see how they're evolving. So mm. I think in a very good position. Before I leave you, Gary, you mentioned a lot of interesting new technology in the delivery of vaccines. I look forward to how these sorts of new technology can be, if you like, brought into childhood immunisation in the future. Yes, the childhood immunisation is very, very important, as you know. I mean, uh, it's it's critical. It, it really is one of the central platforms for our whole health system is the childhood immunisation programme. As you know, I'm with the Immunisation Coalition, one of the directors, and uh, uh, we promote childhood vaccination uh, very carefully. It's, it's very, very important that children get all their vaccines for whole of life, but particularly as children. And so we do have to be careful though at the same time. They are possibly, or uh, well, I think they're the most precious uh, resource in the community, and we need to be incredibly careful with the vaccines that we give them, and we are. There's yeah. not regulation, but there's very careful research done and there's very careful manufacturing done uh, to ensure that all these vaccines are safe and effective. COVID-19 for children is controversial uh, because there's no great burden of disease, but it is available for parents who want to uh, vaccinate their children. Gary, I wasn't meaning just the COVID. I'm just thinking of the patches and various other ways of giving all sorts of vaccines to children without a needle. Uh, that would be in interesting when it comes to the regular immunisation. On the way, I mean, people have sat down and said, well, what do we need? You know, what would make vaccines more palatable to not only children, but parents? And the obvious thing is no needles. And so people have looked at patches, uh, micro needles that simply go into the skin, so subcutaneous immunisation. And they've looked at oral vaccines as well. So allowing, say, a live vaccine to replicate in the gut. Influenza, as you may know, does replicate in the gut anyway. So people are looking at that. Uh, COVID will as well. COVID is uh, not just a respiratory virus, it's an enteric virus. And so when you get things like flu and COVID, uh, you uh, are, can almost certainly make an oral vaccine and have the virus replicate in the gut, and then the immune system reacts accordingly. This has been looked at. This, is, this will be the second generation uh, set of vaccines that I hope will come out next year. Uh, and, and they'll be simpler in that regard. The advantage of a live vaccine, oh, people are also looking at a mist to breathe in, so you get the virus straight, uh, live virus onto the lung that's attenuated. Uh, that gives you a very full response, particularly IgA at the mucosal surface. So that's what's to come. Gary, once again, I do thank you for your time and this very interesting discussion. Wishing you a very Merry Christmas and a very happy and safe New Year. And to you, take care. All the best for Christmas. 
You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.